Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, turn in your Bibles then to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, even though we still have some of chapter 4 to cover. Hey, before we start, I was thinking this week, because I was looking over the years in my mind of uh, different experiences, uh, different people, different relationships, and just what a joy and what an honor it is to be a part of this family. Do you feel that way? Being part with one another. And uh, as I was studying the Word, and I just love doing it, I just thinking, I want to pinch myself. I said, Lord, I've got to be the luckiest person on the earth to be able to have such a wonderful flock, a wonderful family of God to grow up in spiritually and to grow old in as well. To uh, I remember when I announced the birth of my son to this flock, and uh, then the birth of my grandson. So it's just been such a privilege, and uh, it's, I don't know if I'm waxing sentimental, I don't know if I turn this way more or so when I get older, but I feel that way, and uh, I wanted you to know that. And from time to time, I think you need to hear that. Um, the other thing I want to share with you um, uh, is that this is going to be a Bible study tonight. And uh, we'll be here for almost the next hour, or around another hour from now. Uh, we, we do like to share that at the beginning, because we like to warn people. Some people aren't ready for that. And we don't want to force that upon anyone. Uh, but we do want to make you aware of it in case, if you are shocked, and uh, you would have made other plans rather than sitting through an hour Bible study, it's not too late. Uh, as we bow in prayer... Uh, You could uh, readjust your seat and sit in the very back row so that if you wanted to leave, you wouldn't be seen uh, in doing so. But I'm reminded of something in the book of Nehemiah when Ezra taught the people in Jerusalem. And it says that Ezra stood on a platform made out of wood and read distinctly from the law of God and did it from morning until midday. That's a long Bible study. Morning until midday. And it says, all the people stood and gave attention to the law of God. Now that's a four-hour study. To stand for that length of time and to give attention would be quite demanding. So this won't be four hours. You don't have to stand. You can sit comfortably in a nice heated, temperature-controlled room, but we do ask you to Uh, Give reverence to God's Word as we uh, study together. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the flock. We're Your flock. You're our shepherd. As David boasted, the Lord is my shepherd. Because of that, Lord, there's nothing that we need. There's nothing that we want. We're not in lack of anything. You have provided perfectly, totally. Lord, thank You for the life of Jesus that we're able to study a little more rapidly than on Sunday morning. And Father, I thank you for a hungry flock who will take the truth that they learn tonight, that we learn, 
and go out and share it with others and their lives will be transformed, their families, this community will be changed because of the truth that you will impart tonight. We love that. The Word of God will never return void. We believe it. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to everyone who has come just exactly in the situation that we are in. You know what we need. You know who we are. And so we come seeking you and seeking first your kingdom, knowing that everything else will be added to us, even as the Sermon on the Mount so beautifully proclaims. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read a little article that I found, written some time back. It uh, says, it's a bedrock belief of Christianity, not a topic for debate until now. A venerable Protestant denomination, at the behest of some of its conservative members, is preparing to vote next month on a measure declaring that Jesus Christ is the Lord and making it mandatory for clergy to accept his divinity. It may seem like a slam dunk, but delegates for, and it names this large mainline denomination, may reject the resolution. Several pastors who aren't delegates to the convention said they expect the measure to fail. Now, what this mainline denomination was and is arguing over, and I'm not mentioning them on purpose, the disciples are experiencing and have come to the decision that Jesus Christ is their Lord. They're about to make a lifetime decision of following him. In chapter 4, we read through it last week. We didn't really have time to expound on it, as is the name of this whole endeavor on Wednesday nights. And we want to expound a little bit on the disciples and their following of Christ. They knew Jesus. They were acquainted with him far before Jesus called them in Matthew chapter 4. John's gospel indicates that they were acquainted with him. They had asked about him. They hung around him down south at the baptism when John the Baptist was at the Jordan River and Jesus came and was baptized. But now Jesus calls them into ministry in chapter 4. And we're going to begin at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 4. Now, a word about these disciples and where they're at. All they have known in their life, their whole world, is the Sea of Galilee, a lake Their whole world was a countryside lake. It was confined to this agrarian, fisherman lifestyle. It's all they knew. It's all they expected. Now, it's called the Sea of Galilee. You ought to know that the Hebrews were fond of calling lakes by the term seas. If someone who has seen um, uh, huge bodies of water comes to see the Lake of Galilee, they would say, why is this thing called the Sea of Galilee? Any body of water was given that name, even the inland sea called the Dead Sea, that the Jordan River connects from the upper Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is a lake that is below sea level. It's about 12 to 13 miles long and about 9 miles wide. It's called Galilee because that's the district. It's in the area of Galilee, the northern district of the land. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, 
It's good to look at it because you're going to notice something as you look at the map of the Galilee region. Go to that northern region and find the Sea of Galilee. Now that Sea of Galilee, that's how we typically know it, goes by other names in the Scripture, but it's the same body of water. Um, The Lake of Gennesaret, it's called that in the Gospel of Luke. Gennesaret because this flat agricultural plain on the northwestern shore is named after the city of Gennesaret. And the plain of Gennesaret is connected with the city where the fields were located. And so the lake which fed that area was also called the Lake of Gennesaret. If you are reading the Old Testament, you won't find the Lake of Gennesaret. You won't find the Sea of Galilee. You'll find when the land is apportioned out in the Old Testament under Joshua that is called the Lake of Kinneret, and that is the present Jewish name in Israel today, the Kinneret Lake. Why is it called Kinneret? It comes from the Hebrew word Kinor, and Kinor is a harp. And if you now look at the map in the back of your Bible and look at the Lake of Galilee, you notice that it is shaped like an ancient Hebrew Kinor, or harp. So they called it Harp Lake, Kinneret. Or Gennesaret, if you like to name it after the plain. Or Galilee, if you want to name it after that northern district. Or, here's another title mentioned in the New Testament. Named after a city on the southwestern shore built by Herod. The Lake of Tiberias. Named after Tiberius Caesar. And that city is still in existence today. It's really the main city that is there. Uh, it was a Hellenized Greco-Roman city. And uh, if you've been with us to Israel, or if you plan on coming next year, we're going to put you on a boat in Tiberias and take it all the way to where Jesus hung out and had his headquarters, the area of Capernaum. And that's something to be on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And then to stop the boat in the middle of the lake and to just worship the Lord and to pray there. And then to have the captain of that boat take out a net that is modeled after an ancient net and toss it out in a circular fashion. And so you see how they cast nets from the boats, something that we're going to read about tonight. That's just a little bit about what these disciples knew. There were nine towns on the western lake board, I was going to say seaboard, of the uh, Lake of Galilee on Kinneret. And these were fishing towns. And that was its principal industry. It was a freshwater inland lake that was very, very deep and had many species of fish. And uh, it was the livelihood of many people who lived in that area. Now, verse 18, we get the call of the disciples. Not all of them, but four of them are mentioned here. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter. Shimon means God hears. Peter is the name Jesus gives him later on. Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he, Jesus, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now that is a command he's giving them. Not really an invitation. It's in the imperative It's a command. Hey, you guys, drop everything now. Come, follow me. 
As I mentioned, they knew Jesus before. They were with John the Baptist, and they inquired about this Jesus. And John pointed to Jesus, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they already knew Jesus from that event. They had gone back to Galilee. They started resuming their chores as fishermen and working again, which was, which was common. And now Jesus gives them a command to drop everything and go full time. The reason this was unusual is because disciples of rabbis were expected to carry on their normal jobs in life. They would stay employed. They would stay doing what they were doing and they would be able to work for themselves and supply their own way and often, as I mentioned Sunday, would pay the mentor for his services of training them and discipling him. But here Jesus not only calls them, which was against the rabbinical style, the students, the Talmudim in Hebrew, would choose um, the master. Jesus chooses them, but he calls them now to full-time work, to leave everything, to drop everything, to leave their profession. And he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Notice the command. He doesn't say, go to a class on evangelism and I will make you fishers of men. I have nothing against classes on evangelism, by the way. So no notes, okay? He didn't say, hey, there's a really good book you got to read. Once you read that, then I'll make you fishers of men. Or go to this really awesome seminar. He just said simply, follow me. Hang out with me. Spend time with me in my presence. That will so totally change you. You will be different people that you'll develop the same heart that I have for people and you'll be out fishing for the souls of men just like I am. I love that. One follows the other. Hang out with me. Be in my presence. You're going to start doing what I'm doing. You're going to start loving what I love. So the commandment. And so verse 20 they immediately left their nets and followed him. Jesus' commandment to them was a verse of Scripture that the Lord impressed upon my heart many years ago. It it is one of the reasons I'm, I'm here, actually. When I came out here, I didn't really know what to expect other than I was newly married, and I knew that I would have to adjust to being married and to a location that I had never really lived in before. Leaving Southern California about three days after I was married in an old truck that was burning oil. I had landed a job. I found an apartment. We moved here. We looked at each other like, huh, we're married, aren't we? This is a brand new life. We don't know anybody in this town. But we know each other and we know the Lord and we know the Lord brought us here. And uh, when we started the Bible study not far from here at the Lakes Apartments over on San Mateo, we started it and um, I remember telling the Lord based on this verse, Lord, I'm a fisher of men. That's what you've called me to do. I'm happy to do it. And this is the fishing hole that you put me in. I'm going to fish here for a year. After a year, if I don't catch any fish, I'm not, I mean, I, if you're a fisherman, 
you love the sport, you love the activity. For you, it's enough to just get out there and do it. But if you really want to catch fish and you don't catch any in that fishing hole for a year, you're going to go somewhere where the fish are biting, right? That's how I was thinking. Lord, I'll be here a year. If I don't catch any fish, I'm out of here. I didn't really make it past six months. I was just homesick. My parents were there. Lenya's parents were there. Our friends were there. And I didn't really see a whole lot of fruit, although, you know, I'd just been there a few months. I don't know what I was expecting. But I remember telling Lenya one day, I said, Lenya, uh, I've never started a church. I really don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I should get some help first. Maybe somebody that uh, I know would be gracious enough to put me on staff for a while and, and teach me what I ought to do. So I said it was wintertime at the time, and um, for a Southern Californian, though Albuquerque is considered pretty mild for people, if you're from Michigan, that's where my wife is from, she said, this is mild. For me, it was extraordinarily harsh. <laughs> there was this translucent white stuff on the ground in the wintertime. I didn't know what it was, and my wife had to say, honey, that's just frost. Don't worry about it. You'll make it just fine. And as I was encouraging her, honey, we're just going to go somewhere else, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you owe me six months. And reminded me of the little conversation that we had. Lord, you've called me to be a fisher of men, and I'm going to give it a year, and I know that, you know, and all that stuff. The Lord just said, you owe me six months. I talked it over with my elders at the time when we were starting our little study, and they said, give it six months. I would obey the Lord on this one. Boy, am I glad that I waited in the fishing hole another six months and saw the Lord move like He has moved. I wasn't as compliant as these disciples. They immediately left their nets and they followed Him. Now just think for a moment the journey that they were about to embark on. All they have known is this countryside lake All they have known is casting out the nets and cleaning the fish and selling the fish and knowing friends and family around the lake. That's all they knew. Okay, they probably had been to Jerusalem a few times for the festivals, but that's all they knew. Within a few years, this fisherman named Peter will be standing in Jerusalem casting out a spiritual net, and after one of his sermons, 3,000 fish will be caught. 3,000 souls will come into the kingdom. I'm sure Peter went, man, am I glad I left that day. Man, am I glad that I immediately left everything and followed this Jesus. This is exciting. Of course, it wasn't always that exciting. He died a martyr's death, but I'm sure he was happy to do it for his Lord's sake. Then there was John, He's also mentioned in the next few verses. John, a fisherman with his brother James and their dad. They had the Zebedee fishing business around Galilee. John will become a pastor in Ephesus, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's going to go all the way from that lake all the way toward one of the principal cities of the empire, Ephesus. And he'll pastor there. And then he'll be exiled to an island in the middle of the sea, the Patmos Island, a prison colony. He's probably sitting there going, I don't know, man, this, I didn't expect this when I said yes to Jesus. But 
It was there that John will be given a vision of the end of the world, the end of times, the kingdom age, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Just think of the journey in saying yes to Jesus and what it would mean for us and what excitement it would mean for them as they left everything. Well, let's look at these two brothers. Verse 21. Then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now they're sitting in the boat with dad and they get up and they leave dad holding the net. See you, dad. We're, we're out of here. Hey, wait, where are you kids going? You're on the clock. You, you just can't leave. Uh, see ya. We're out of here. We're not coming home for dinner. And they were gone. Now, James is mentioned. This is James, the son of John, or the uh, brother of John, but I, I, I just want to throw this in so you don't get thrown off later on. There are two men who are Jesus' apostles who are named James. This James, and another guy named James, the son of Alphaeus. He's called James the Less. This guy here is known as James the Greater, because James is in the inner circle with Jesus. Then there's another James, later on, who is the half-brother of Jesus, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph, who is a non-believer during Jesus' ministry, who will become a believer after the resurrection and will become in charge of the church at Jerusalem. So there's three James you have to keep in your mind as you go through this narrative. This is James, the fisherman, the brother of John, John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Those are the Zebedee boys. Now, do you remember the nickname that Jesus is going to give to James and John? Sons of Thunder. Because these two boys, now I don't know how you picture John and James. You might picture them very meek. I don't picture them that way at all. I picture them sort of rowdy. Because after all, he called them Sons of Thunder because they were going through a town in Samaria. The Samaritans had a different worldview and didn't really believe in the Jewish Messiah. and They didn't receive Jesus as Messiah. And they really didn't like Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And these Samaritans hated Jerusalem. So James and John suggested to Jesus that they call fire down from heaven and destroy all the Samaritans. As if they had the power to do so. I think they were asking permission, Lord, could you give us the power to nuke them? I don't picture them as meek and mild. I picture them as like the New Testament skinheads, you know, the goths. Their robes were black leather. They were the tough kids on the block. Now, they get changed as they follow Jesus. But Jesus humorously nicknamed them sons of thunder. Now, here's the good news. They get transformed from sons of thunder to sons of wonder. Jesus does a wonderful work in their lives. John's writings are some of the most gracious, beautiful, Christ-exalting literature in all of the Bible. He's a changed man because Jesus gets a hold of him. 
And so I love that. He takes us the way we are with our personalities, as rough and rugged as we are. But he's in the process of changing you. I don't know how far he's gotten in your life. He's got a ways to go on me. But a lot of changes have happened nonetheless. And so it is with these men. Now, John is going to give himself a name. Jesus will call him Sons of Thunder. Remember what John calls himself? Yes, he calls himself, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, you might hear that and go, gosh, that's kind of prideful. No, I think it's beautiful. Because you know what? I consider myself the disciple that Jesus loved. And I hope you consider yourself the one that Jesus loves. It's so personal to John. And he felt so close to Jesus. He felt that love so distinctly that he said, yeah, I'm the one Jesus loved. That's how he calls himself by that name in his gospel. What would have happened if John would have sat in that boat with his brother, looked at his brother and said, I don't know, should we do it? I don't know. It's a big risk. we got a good job here. You know, when dad's dead, it could be soon, we're going to have the business. It's ours, man. It's part of the inheritance. We're the kids. And we've worked long and hard on this lake. We've built up a reputation. I think it's safer, you know, just to... Uh, well, we can support this whole messianic thing, send a check every now and then, but let's just stay put. Too risky. Nope. They immediately left everything, including Dad, and I know they were glad they made that choice. Is there some area of further service ministry that God is calling some of you to? But you've been wrestling and thinking, boy, risky. To leave my comfort zone, to go to another country or to another place, to another city, to, to another group of people, whatever the case might be. If it's the prompting of the Lord, listen to that. Surrender to that. Don't move too quickly. Don't move ahead of the Lord. But don't dig your heels in either. If it's the Lord's call, immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Now verse 23 is a summary. We're getting into the Sermon on the Mount. You can tell I'm going slow. Don't think I'm going to finish chapter 5. If we finish the Beatitudes tonight, we'll be blessed by God. But this is important material here. And here's what Matthew is doing. Matthew's focus is going to be on what Jesus said, the sermons Jesus gave. Five discourses that he gives are highlighted in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is coming up in chapter 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. So what, what Matthew does, before he gets there to that first great discourse, that first great message, is gives us a little resume, a little summary. Here's the summary of Jesus' ministry, activity, and geography. This is what he was doing. And he just sums it up neatly in a verse or two. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Let me just uh, frame something for you so you understand the impact of that statement. I talked about Galilee, the northern district, the lake, the area of Galilee comprised 28,000 square miles. 
It was 40 miles wide by 70 miles tall, if you look at it on a map. According to Josephus, there were 204 towns, cities, villages in the area of Galilee, 204. And Josephus said each of those had no less than 15,000 people. So that makes the population of Galilee around 3 million people at the time of Jesus. Now, I'll be fair. There is some dispute about that. A lot of scholars reckon 3 million is a little high for Galilee. And it might be so. And here's their reasoning. When Josephus wrote that, which was around 60, 66 A.D., he was the governor of Galilee. He was the head political official. And it is thought that Josephus wanted to sort of give the impression that he was the governor over a larger group of people, so he embellished the numbers a little bit. Josephus isn't a biblical writer. He's a historian. So it could be that there were 350,000 people, but add a zero to it and makes it more impressive on the books, especially for the Romans, and he was friends with the Romans. We can't be certain. That's just what he writes. But it was a sizable, populated area, also known as, we mentioned last time, the Galilee of the Gentiles, because many Gentiles made war there and settled around that area. So he sums it up. And he was in Galilee, and notice the three activities Jesus did. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom, or first of all, teaching in the synagogues. Second, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And third, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, please notice the order of those activities. Because when ancient historians wrote, they put the thing, item of most importance as number one. Number one, I believe to Jesus, as seen in the gospel of Matthew, we'll get into in chapter five, is teaching. He taught people. He expounded the scripture. He's doing what, what we're doing. Taking precepts and principles. Then he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom to unbelievers. Unbelievers need the preaching of the gospel. Believers don't really need the preaching of the gospel. They're saved. They need the teaching of the word to grow. And then third, he was healing. Now, some people would have reversed the order and said, Jesus was healing. He had a healing ministry. Yes, he did. But that was subservient to preaching, which was subservient to teaching. Number one on his list was teaching. Precept upon precept. Helping people understand the truths of God. I do believe that many ministries are out of balance. Many so-called healing ministries or even so-called preaching ministries because... There's no teaching. It's filled with exhortation. You ought to be doing this. You ought to love more. You ought to evangelize more. You ought to do this. That's, that's great. That's exhortation. Or proclamation. But when you keep telling people every week you ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing that, if you don't tell them how to do it, if you don't teach them how to do it, it's very frustrating. That's why all preaching and all exhortation is very frustrating to sit under. It's like you're constantly getting kicked and kicked and kicked and patted and prodded. And the people are poor people are crying out, just teach me how to do this, what you're telling me. 
Teaching is so important, and Jesus did that. Then his fame went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Jesus' popularity went up north to Syria. Now, to a Galilean, they didn't think of Syria in the nation of Syria properly, but anything north of Galilee to a Galilean was Syria to them. They didn't think much about the other geography above and beyond that. Just whatever's north of us, that's Syria. So Jesus' popularity went far up north. And what excited people and what drew the crowds, no doubt, was the excitement over his healing miracles. I understand that. If you've had a friend who's been blind your whole life and suddenly he can see, or somebody who can't walk, walking down the street carrying his mat, that'll get your attention. And these were bona fide healings. It's not like, oh yes, my friend had a cold and now he's healed. Or a sore throat and a touch of the flu. I mean, these were incurable diseases. Instantly they were made whole. That got people's attention. And what really got their attention is the first words out of Jesus' mouth, then accompanied by the signs and miracles, was this message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, every Jewish person hearing that, their mind went all the way back to Isaiah 11, all the way back to Isaiah 35. Those great messianic kingdom age prophecies. So they're naturally thinking, the kingdom age is upon us. What we would call the millennial kingdom. We know that as the millennium. From a New Testament perspective, when we put all the scriptures together, we see those as being fulfilled during the thousand years when Jesus reigns on earth. That's still to come. To the disciples and to the Jewish audience back then, when Jesus preached the kingdom and authenticated who he was with miracles, they thought, this is it. We're about to enter that great messianic epoch, the era of the Messiah. Because that will be a time marked with the freedom of disease, the absence of pain, the absence of sorrow, like Revelation tells us. No crying, no sickness, no sorrow, no death. They thought it was here and now. Brings up a question. What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Now they interpreted that to mean the messianic era, the kingdom ages upon us. It doesn't mean it's about to be fulfilled as much as the kingdom of God in the presence of the person of the king is here with you. I am the king of the kingdom. And the king has come to you. And wherever the king is and whomever the king rules over, that is his kingdom. And he will even say that later on. My kingdom is not from this earth. My kingdom is from above. It's not of this world. Now, there will come a day in the future, when his kingdom will be a worldwide, earthly, powerful kingdom. But since 2,000 years up till now, it's not. But the king resides in us and rules over those that will give him that free reign. Verse 25, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. He's drawn a huge circle. I mentioned last week, a hundred-mile circle he's drawn. This is how widespread Jesus' ministry has become. Now, you see the word Decapolis? It's really easy what it means. 
just cut it in half. Deca polis. Ten cities. That's what Decapolis means. Ten cities. Because the Decapolis was a ring of ten Greco-Roman cities from Damascus down to Galilee, mostly on the eastern side of the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee in present-day Jordan, where the Romans sought to have a Roman influence in that far eastern part of the Roman Empire. So they called it the Decapolis. They had Roman baths. They had the Roman road systems. They had the beautiful temples. And much of that is in existence in some of these places today. If you come with us uh, to uh, Israel coming up this year, we'll take you down to the capital of the Decapolis, which was known as Scythopolis, or the Old Testament name, Bet She'an. And you will see some of the buildings, the Roman, Greco-Roman buildings from this time, and the streets that are, many of them, pretty intact, amazingly so. Even though the city was destroyed with an earthquake, a lot of it is still intact. Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Verse 1, Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Let's read through this a little bit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I was a baby Christian, my first Bible was a paperback. It was the TEV, Today's English Version. It was called on the front cover, Good News for Modern Man, just a New Testament. And the first book that I read was the first book under the cover of the Gospel of Matthew. It wasn't Genesis, it was the New Testament. So all I knew, the first, my first, I cut my teeth on Matthew. I started reading it, and I thought, wow, this is powerful. Then I decided, because I started getting into chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and then the Beatitudes, and my life started really changing. I was two weeks in the Lord, and I'm reading the Beatitudes. I decided, or somebody told me, I needed to get a real Bible, like a whole Bible. So I went down to the Bible bookstore, and I bought a red-letter edition, that genuine fake leather cardboard-binding Old and New Testament. And it said red-letter, and I didn't know what that red-letter, what is red-letter? And then it said, oh, words of Christ in red. So I went back, and I started in Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I thought, boy, if the words of Christ are in red, he, did, he didn't have a lot to say. There's a lot of black words here, not a lot of red words. Then I came to chapter 5, and I went, oh, goodness, there's a lot on his mind. Because chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's all Jesus talking. It's all red letters. As I started reading through the Sermon on the Mount and found what was on Jesus' mind, a lot of it was very comforting to me. A lot of it was bothersome to me because I was convicted by what I read. 
I, I saw there's a whole different standard of living that up to that point I, I hadn't been living in. Now it's called, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's what your Bible says. Mine says the Sermon on the Mount in, in a little paragraph heading. I don't like that title. First of all, because, well, once you see the little rolling hill where Jesus preached this, it's hardly a mount. And we're used to a mountain of 10,000 plus feet right outside our door. And you'll see this little lake lump. And they'll say, this is the mount where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And you're going to go, really? That's it? It sort of takes the steam away, the thunder away. So it's not accurate. Second, there's no information in the title, the Sermon on the Mount. That's like if I said Sunday morning, the name of my sermon this morning is called the Sermon from the Pulpit. (laughs) doesn't introduce you to any theme. It just tells you where I'm preaching it from and what's in front of me. So I don't like calling it, it's really not the Sermon on the Mount. It's a mountain of a sermon. It's the, here's a better title, the Sermon of the monarch. It's the king giving the manifesto of the kingdom. That's what it is. This is kingdom living. This is someone whose life is under the authority of King Jesus. This is what their life will be like. This is how they enter the kingdom. This is how they walk in the kingdom, etc. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived. How's that? And when he was done preaching it, the people went, wow. You go, really? I've never read that. i never read wow. Well, that's the NSV. That's the new skip version. Uh, translating, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. I translate that as, wow, that was awesome, Jesus. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It was a riveting sermon. It's a powerful sermon showing their relationship to the law, their relationship to the kingdom. Three incredible chapters. It's a mountain of a sermon. It's the sermon of the monarch. Now, in verse 1, It says, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And look at this. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. Jesus didn't stand for this sermon. He didn't stand in front of a pulpit for this sermon. That's really a Western idea. We stand and you sit. In those days, it was reversed. The pupils would stand. The teacher would sit. The rabbi often taught his disciples in a number of ways. If he wanted to teach them sort of casually, he would walk with them. But that was considered informal, unofficial. If the rabbi wanted to give an official teaching to demonstrate authority, he would be seated. Now, if you are familiar with the university system, you've heard this statement. That professor has a chair in the university, we call it. It means it's a position of honor and authority. 
He's a chaired professor. He's speaking from a seated position or authoritative position. It comes from this practice. If you are Roman Catholic, you're familiar with the term ex-cathedra. I remember hearing that term as a child. The Pope has spoken ex-cathedra. That means from the chair, seated upon the chair in St. Peter's. He's giving church dogma. And if he says it ex-cathedra, they consider it as good as Scripture, unfortunately. But it's a position of authority. So Jesus, as the rabbi, was seated. Now notice something. He's not teaching the crowds. He allows them to eavesdrop. It says his disciples came to him and he taught them saying. He saw the multitudes. He sat down. His disciples came to him and he taught them. That is the disciples. It's a very important key here. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is the standard of salvation. If you want to be saved, you need to practice and do these things in the Sermon on the Mount and you can get to heaven. Oh, good luck. You think the Ten Commandments are hard. Well, you get through this puppy. Others say, well, this is a charter of nations. And I've read where authors have encouraged heads of state to employ the Sermon on the Mount to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Listen, telling an unbeliever to act like a Christian is idiocy. There's no transformation. There's no new birth yet. They need a new birth. Jesus has to change the earth. The king has to reside in there. The kingdom of God hasn't come yet to that person. No, this is the king giving the manifesto of the kingdom that is enabled, and it'll show you how to enter the kingdom, how to walk with the king, how to grow with the king. He'll show you that whole transformation process. But this is not telling an unbeliever how to be saved. So Jesus sat down. The disciples came to him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. Now, I just can't resist saying this because it's right here. A modern church strategist would have read this and go, Oh no, why'd he do that? I mean, he's got a crowd out there beyond these few disciples. He's got a crowd of very interested people who have seen miracles. These are unbelievers. They're unconverted. They're religious, but they're unconverted. The disciples are already part of the kingdom. This isn't time to do church. This is time to hold a crusade. Jesus should have been preaching how to get saved and telling them that whole repentance message and going in depth. Why teach the disciples? Because that's the disciples' job. Again, I can't resist and... What do we care if we finish chapter 5 this week or next week or the week after? So turn with me to chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9. I'll breeze through it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Matthew 9. Watch this. Watch the pattern just so you understand Jesus' thinking and how he's doing things. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness, every disease among the people. Very similar to what we read. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now listen to what Jesus, he didn't say, hold on boys, 
bring him here. Let me say a few words to them. He said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. See where he's thinking here? He's thinking, we need more helpers out here. This is a big field. So, when he had called his twelve disciples to them, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Their names are given. Verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see the pattern of Jesus? He's going to teach his disciples truth, and then he's going to turn the disciples loose. That's Jesus' method. Teach them truths. Turn them loose. Teach the disciples, get them to preach, and let them go out and do it. So he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, probably, I don't know. But could it be between chapter 9 and 10, they started praying? Hey, did you hear what Jesus said today? He said we had to pray for, for more laborers. So, Peter, you go ahead. You're, you're, you're the guy everybody mentions first. So uh, why don't you lead us in prayer, Peter? Okay. Lord, I pray that you just send a whole lot more people into that harvest field to do the work like Jesus said. Amen. Then you get to chapter 10 and Jesus says, Boys, your prayer's been answered. Go. I'm answering your prayer by sending you into the harvest field. So do you understand why teaching, equipping saints is so important? Because it's God's people who will go out into the community. You know, a lot of people get saved at this church. A lot of people come to Christ Wednesday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday mornings. It's not because I'm some great preacher. It's because you're obedient to Christ. You're well-taught, you're well-fed, you go out, you do evangelism, you invite them to church, I'll just throw out the net from time to time, and all of your work in cooperation with the Spirit of God, they get caught in the net, and we all rejoice together. So Jesus trains the disciples and dispatches them into the world, and they go out. So, back to Matthew 5. Wow, we made it to two verses. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed. That's a word you find in every one of these beatitudes. That's why they're called beatitudes because it begins with the word blessed. Now these are beatitudes. It's been often said, um, it tells us who a Christian is. It's our character. It's not what we do. It's who we are. They're not called do attitudes. They're called beatitudes. This is what you are and I am to be by the grace of God. Begins with the word blessed, makarios in Greek. A better term, blissful, happy, contented. Not a surface temporary joy, but something deep and abiding. Oh, how happy to be envied. Oh, how blissful, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how you enter the kingdom. To enter the kingdom of heaven... You have to come humbly. You don't come proud. You don't come puffed up and saying, well, I'm this and I'm that and I've earned. 
You come poor in spirit. The word poor is the Greek word tokos, and it literally means threadbare, poverty-stricken. It speaks of abject poverty. Destitute would be a better term. Bankrupt would be another term. In classical Greek, it described a person who had one hand over his face not to be recognized by the crowd and one hand out for a handout. But he put one hand over like, don't look at me. That's poor in spirit. I'm so poor, I'm so bankrupt, I have no resources in and of myself. That's how you enter the kingdom. Nobody is in the kingdom of God who has entered as a proud, self-asserting, a person who's earned it. But someone who recognizes, I'm bankrupt. Nothing in my hand I bring, as that old hymn, Rock of Ages, goes. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm bankrupt before God. If you send a sinner to school, he'll be, you'll have an educated sinner. If you send a sinner to a psychiatrist, you'll have a well-adjusted sinner. Give a sinner money and you'll have a wealthy sinner. Give a sinner religion, have him sign a pledge card and join a church and you'll have a religious sinner. But send a sinner repentant of his sin to the cross and you'll have a forgiven sinner. So the idea is I recognize my I'm broke before God, I'm poverty stricken, I can't make it on my own. That's how I enter, lowly, poor, bankrupt. Then verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because I realize I'm bankrupt, I come, number one, humbly. I come, number two, sorrowfully. I'm mourning over my sin. Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me. Now notice it doesn't say blessed are those who moan. This isn't a scripture like, oh, I I can complain. It's right there in the Bible. It's my favorite verse. I can whine. It doesn't say, blessed are the whiners. Whiners aren't blessed and anybody around them is not either. (laughs) Mourning is different than moaning. Oh, by the way, in the first beatitude, it doesn't say, blessed are the poor. I've heard this mistranslated. Blessed in spirit are the poor. It didn't say that. There's nothing... There's nothing that's a spiritual blessing about being poor. It's a spiritual condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, poverty stricken in spirit. That is, spiritually, I have nothing with which I could ever approach God in and of myself. That's being poor in spirit. That causes, number two, that I mourn over my sin. Sorrowful over my sin. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Now, this sounds like an oxymoron. Blessed, or oh, how happy, are those who mourn? One translation says, happy are the sad. See, that doesn't compute to us. It doesn't make any sense. Because in America, in, in, in the West here, we think that the way to happiness is to avoid sadness, to avoid pain, to avoid ministry, a uh, ministry, <laughs> Misery. No, that wasn't a Freudian slip. 
ministry is pure joy. But the avoidance of bad things brings happiness. Happy are the sad. That's the Phillips translation. It doesn't compute. It's an oxymoron. It sounds like a self-contradictory statement. But it's, it's blessed because I'm going to get comforted because I realize in and of myself I have nothing. I come to God in that condition. I'm mourning over my sin, and I'm comforted because of the forgiveness that comes because of it. Wish we had time to go through it, but we don't. But write in the margin of your Bible or look it up later, Luke chapter 18. Jesus gives a parable about two people approaching God. One of them is a Pharisee and he prays out loud, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like that person or that person. I'm really cool and I'm really awesome and I fast and I tithe. I'm taking a little bit of liberality in translating it. But then there was someone else, a tax collector. Now, everybody hated tax collectors and this tax collector had the right idea. He knew that he was bankrupt before God and he wouldn't even lift his eyes up toward heaven. That's poor in spirit. He looked down and he beat his breast. That's mourning. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Remember the story? There's a man who is poor in spirit and there's a man who is mourning over his poverty of spirit. And Jesus said that man went away justified. The first man didn't go away justified. He went away proud. He was a religious, prideful person. God, I thank you that I'm not like a lot of these other creeps around here. Hallelujah, praise God. (laughs) Jesus said he's not justified. If you're not poor in spirit, you don't mourn over your sin. If you don't mourn over your sin, you are not justified before God. If you're poor in spirit, you will mourn over your sin. When you mourn over your sin, it brings you into the state of justification. That's called repentance. That's called repentance. And it's lacking in modern preaching and it's lacking in modern Christianity and it's a hallmark of the New Testament. And Jesus said, that's how you enter the kingdom. Recognizing you're bankrupt, mourning over your sins, and that turns you into a person who is meek. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We'll finish it up there next week. From there. I'll give you a little bit of a teaser for next week. I'll explain what meekness is, but here's a, here's a sort of a shortcut. Just take the word meek and cut it in two and you'll get the idea. Me, ech. That should help. You see, the first beatitude comes from seeing who God is. And in seeing who God is, And seeing how amazingly pure God is, it makes you realize, I'm bankrupt spiritually. He's amazing. It causes you to mourn. And as you mourn, part of that mourning is you are now seeing yourself in light of who God is. And it creates this powerful transformation of meekness. And I'll explain in more detail next week. Father in heaven... Thank you for the ministry that happened around Galilee and Jerusalem and how the gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem through Judea into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And one of those uttermost parts is our little town here. 
and our little lives here and how the good news has reached us. And as you called those disciples to follow you, you've called us to follow you. And some of us have a capacity of what has been called full-time ministry, but in reality all of us are called to follow you and serve you full-time. No matter what is our paycheck from or our means of living, we're followers of Christ, we're disciples. Lord, show us how we can fish for men and women's souls. And Lord, I would pray for anyone who's here tonight who's not a part of the kingdom. The king, King Jesus, is not reigning in their hearts. He's not ruling in their lives. They never asked him to sit upon the throne of their heart. Up to this point, they've been very content to rule their own lives. It could be, Father, I don't know, but it's probable that some lately have seen the fallacy in that. The emptiness and self-rule and the need to be ruled by Christ. Lord, we want to give you an opportunity to speak and to bring men or women into that gospel net tonight as it is cast once again. And we trust that your Spirit, Lord, would do that work of convincing and convicting, drawing and ultimately saving. As we're praying right now and we're about to close in a song, could it be that some of you tonight are not believers? It's not personal to you. You're not really following Jesus. You never made a conscious, personal decision to make Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord. You've never asked Him to forgive your sins and to become your Savior and your Master. And maybe you are experiencing right now that drawing work of the Spirit of God. He's telling you, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me, broken as you are, acknowledging your imperfection and your sin, and I'll forgive you just as you are. Maybe you're hearing that clear voice to come to Jesus tonight. It could be that some others still uh, made some decision when they were younger. But that was sidelined. It was the emotion of a moment. It was a good feeling for a few months, but you're not walking with the Lord tonight. And Jesus is speaking to you and saying, come home. And Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for the blessings that we've gleaned as we have studied through this short little section of Matthew and his testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.